Just because it happens to be intellectual property, what accepts that from the general notion that you don't ask for cars to be free, you don't ask for food to be free, and, and just because it seems to be a little evanescent, why all of a sudden should that be free? Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, your host. Welcome to Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at the role of intellectual property rights and how creators become entrepreneurs. Jonathan Taplin has had a creative and varied career. Movie producer, Innovation Lab director, Wall Street dealmaker, and tour manager for Bob Dylan. Taplin has produced movies for Martin Scorsese, worked on transactions at Merrill Lynch, and created the first video-on-demand service. He is author of an acclaimed book on technology and culture, Move Fast and Break Things. An outspoken critic of copyright abuse, Taplin believes content creators of all types need to be treated fairly. At risk, he says, is a range of output from sound recordings to journalism. Taplin's articles on culture and the Internet have appeared in national publications, including the Wall Street Journal. He is a council member of the Authors Guild and Dean Emeritus at USC's Annenberg Innovation Lab. John, uh, welcome to IP Understanding Matters. Good to be here. You've been involved in several creative arenas where content matters. Hollywood, Wall Street, the music business. Over the past 30 years, technology has disrupted content delivery, making it more accessible, but also making it more vulnerable to theft. What has been the impact? Well, the net uh, output has, has not been good, quite frankly, for content makers. Uh, if you just look at the music business uh, before Napster, music business was about a $30 billion business. Today, it's about a $10 billion to $12 billion business. So, I mean, that's pretty dramatic. Uh, it, it's clearly uh, artists are substituting, as they say, uh, analog dollars for digital dimes. And, uh, you know, the problem really is in the streaming business, for instance, it used to be that uh, a record company would get 80% of their revenue out of 20% of their product. In other words, one in five records or one in five movies would be a hit. Mm -hmm. But when I did my book, Move Fast and Break Things, uh, I did some research and, and it had gotten to the point where 90% uh, of the revenue was coming from 1% of the product. So that meant that Jay-Z and Beyonce and Adele and Taylor Swift were doing really well with us in the streaming world, but there were just millions of artists who weren't making any money at all or were making, you know, a thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't sustain a career on that. And of course, the effect of that is that musicians of my son's career, my son is a record producer and engineer in, in Oakland, California. And they just assume they're never going to make any money from uh, recordings. They just want to go on tour. <laughs> you said, John, that um, protect copyrights so the middle class creative worker can make a living. What, what does that mean? Not to say, oh, in my day, but as you pointed out, I, I worked for Bob Dylan and 
the band and a lot of people in the 60s and 70s. And, and if you really look at Bob Dylan's career, for instance, his first record sold 4,000 copies. <laughs> uh, you know, that is not much, but the record companies were willing to sustain those kind of artists, whether it was Bob Dylan or Randy Newman or, you know, kind of the oddball artists in order because they thought they were worthy. Um, but those kind of artists don't really count very much mm -hmm. today. And so the people, you know, I mean, when Bob Dylan was selling 4,000 records, Frankie Avalon and <laughs> Fabian were selling millions of records. But today, looking back, what was more important, Bob Dylan or Frankie Avalon? Well, that's pretty obvious, you know, but if you just talked about, well, how many records did they sell doesn't have any input to what it really means. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to sustain, I call it middle class, but it really means that the, the kind of working artist who is in the book business called the mid-list artist, you know, and, and so um, that's important. At 19, you were getting your bachelor's degree from Princeton. On weekends, you worked as a tour manager for Bob Dylan. What did you learn from that experience? You know, I had gone to Princeton and my father wanted me to be a lawyer. And, mm -hmm. and then I kind of got into the rock and roll business on the inside, working for Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman. And I quickly realized that that was where the magic was. My new book is called The Magic Years, and it really was kind of magical. Uh, and so... What I, it learned taught me was that that culture leads politics. In other words, what's important is that Bob Dylan was singing about the civil rights movement long before Lyndon Johnson passed the voting rights bill, and and so those kinds of things um, are always happening, and they come out of culture. I mean, just think about the gay rights movement. I mean. Ellen DeGeneres was on TV and changing people's minds long before the Supreme Court said that gay marriage could be legal. So, I mean, it does seem to me that culture plays an important part. And one of the problems with the current copyright regime, especially in the Internet age, is that it's very hard for uh, artists to really make a living. Um, you know, one of the problems that I really have is that there are two so-called so safe harbor provisions in the laws that really need to be changed. There's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and there's Section 512 of the Di Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So Section 230 basically says that no, no internet provider like Facebook can be called a publisher in the sense that if the Boston Globe publishes something that's obviously untrue and libelous and everything, they can be sued. Mm -hmm. Facebook can never be sued for publishing anti-vax stuff that's just not true and or saying publishing stuff that says the election was all a fraud. Mm -hmm. um, so because they don't have any worry about getting sued, they don't really care about cleaning up all the 
the trash that's on their systems. On the Section 512 part, I can't sue YouTube for putting up music that I own, copyrights that I own, right. um, without my permission. Mm-hmm. All I can do is you can ask file take it a, down, a takedown notice. Right. Mm-hmm. And as long as YouTube does that within some period of time that's reasonable, which is usually thought of as two weeks after right. they get the notice, I can never sue them. But you know what happens. It's a game of whack-a-mole. So right. they right. take down one version of the band's The Weight, and the next morning, another version goes up from another user, and YouTube knows that'll happen. So the, the song will always be on their system. Mm-hmm for free. And of course, needless to say, because everything is on YouTube for free, it's very hard to build a very large paid streaming model. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, obviously, as you well know, artists get paid better by Spotify's premium model than they get paid by the ad supported and they get paid better by Spotify's ad supported than they get paid by YouTube's quote unquote, ad supported system. So, I mean, it's a real conundrum. And and I think these, both these safe harbors need to be addressed in the next few years. Uh, you wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, a while back. They said, uh, do, you, do you love music was the title. Silicon Valley doesn't. Well, what were you saying there? Well, I mean, basically what we've been talking about, the, the music to Silicon Valley, to whether it's Facebook or YouTube, is simply a way to attract users in order to make revenue from advertising. And, and you know, the term of art is called engagement. And all Silicon Valley is, cares about is engagement. They don't care about music. They have no care about whether an artist gets paid or not. It's, it's, and now you have new forces like TikTok, which are just as abusive of the copyright holders as was YouTube and, and Facebook. So, I mean, these are problems that are ongoing. Nothing's really going to change unless we do some things to change the laws. Now, One of the things that's encouraging to me is that it does seem to me that the Biden administration is much more serious about supporting copyright, supporting patents and other things than the predecessor, than the Trump administration, or quite frankly, the Obama administration. Um, They were all pretty weak on this. And, you know, YouTube, which is owned by Google, uh, it was notoriously bad in protecting copyright. And, and of course, in the same thing, you know, as you know, I had a company called Entertainer, which has some really seminal patents in the video on demand space that we believe YouTube um, impinged upon. And of course, right in the middle of our very long drawn out patent suit, Obama pointed YouTube's head of patents as head of the <laughs> patent office. And so we knew that it was a short time before we were going to get our patents thrown out. And sure enough, the patent office threw out our patents. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, you know, we've all talked about regulatory capture and, and this is a big problem. 
The new uh, patent commissioner, as you may know, uh, just uh, named last week, is also from Silicon Valley. Uh, she's a Silicon Valley litigator. We will see, though. You know, we're keeping an open mind, and right. uh, I think she'll be a pretty good uh, uh, leader. Uh, so a really, really good indication of what happened is just happened this morning. Is the Justice Department sued Penguin Random House to prevent them from buying Simon and Schuster, which would have made them given them about sixty-five percent, seventy percent of the book business. <laughs> and and they sued them as a monopsony, not a monopoly. And I thought that was really important. And and the point of a monopsony is when you have a c- central buyer of content, it tends to, of course, the producer prices down radically. I mean, obviously, the most famous monopsony of all is Amazon. Mm-hmm. Amazon is constantly pushing book sellers to lower their prices. Mm-hmm. But they made the argument that that essentially uh, Random House, once it owned Simon Schuster, would also be a monopsony, and that would have hurt writers and hurt their living. John, the technology for monitoring audio and video signatures has long been available, at least 10 years. Why aren't content providers using that? You know, quite frankly, Google has a very good content ID system, but they use it on YouTube simply to decide whether something can be advertised or not. In other words, instead of using it how it should be used, which is, I do not want this tune on YouTube full stop. So when someone tries to upload that tune to YouTube, it would be blocked by the content ID system. They don't use it that way. They simply use it that once someone has uploaded something that is owned by, say, Universal Music, then they say, well, Universal Music should get whatever advertising revenue flows from this piece of content. So it's not being used the way it should be used. And look, one of the big issues is that we have to understand that Facebook and YouTube are the largest publishers in the world. In other words, their market size of 3 billion people is far larger than any publisher, any newspaper, any network of any kind. And they do a lot of editorial things. You notice that there's very little pornography on YouTube or Facebook. And that's because they deploy artificial intelligence at scale to make sure that when someone tries to upload porn, Mm -hmm. it doesn't ever get on the platform. Why they can't use those same tools to block copyrighted material is simply a factor of economics. In some countries, but not the U.S., Google and Facebook under pressure have entered into agreements to compensate some news publishers for the right to publish their content. Does this set the stage for other for deals and agreements with content creators uh, who should be paid? I would hope so. I mean, look, there are some bills moving through Congress very slowly that address some of these issues. And um, I think, you know, Senator Klobuchar seems to be a real advocate for content creators. 
And we'll see what happens. I mean, there are other people on the other side of the issue, like Ron Wyden, who are simply, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, shills for Google. And, and so I'm not positive, for instance, on the safe harbor issues, anything's ever going to get done because Wyden pluck puts a block on it every time anyone tries to address it. Many artists, uh, Dylan, Prince, Paul Simon, have sold their catalogs or collateralized them with licensing deals that provide upfront cash. From an investor perspective, uh, this is an indication in confidence in copyright, but not weakness. What's your thought on that? Uh, you know, I think these things make a lot of sense. You know, if you're in your 80s and you can do a net present value calculation of your catalog that says that in the year 2040, it's going to be paying out $6 million. You're not going to be around in 2040. <laughs> so why not take the money now? Yeah. And, yeah. and the point is that, you know, Blackstone just put a billion dollars into a copyright fund. In other words, to me, musical copyrights, for instance, has always been like buying a bond. You can actually calculate what it's worth and what it's going to pay, even given all the problems that you have in collecting from streaming. But there's technological obsolescence or disruption. You don't know what technology is going to be. And also there are cultural changes that may or may not make something popular 10 years from now. Yeah, but, but think about this. Um, in, in my book, Move Fast and Break Things, you know, I told the story of Levon Helm, who was the drummer of the band, who made a very decent living all through the 90s, even though the band had stopped recording in 1976. Um, because in the 80s, the new format of the CD came out and people bought the whole band catalog again. Yeah, in right. format. Mm -hmm. And so he continued to make money. And then, of course, Napster came and that, just stopped. And then he got throat cancer and, you know, he, he didn't have enough money to pay his, his healthcare. Now on the other side of that ledger, people who were writing songs like Robbie Robertson or Bob Dylan continued to get paid all through the nineties, through the two thousands and 2010 and get paid more and more. Why is that? Well, because PROs, the ASCAP and BMI, were very good at collecting money from every Gap store that played music in the <laughs> thing to entertain, every bar that played music, every retail location that used music. And more and more and more, people were using music to stir people to do commercial activity. And so it was just a technological glitch that the rights holders for the master never got paid from those sources, whereas the, the publishers were smart enough to make sure they got paid from those places. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the kind of things that technology can actually do because you can actually check out how many people hear your song at the gap, you know, just by survey reason. Right. Doesn't ASCAP or someone monitor that? Yeah. That's why the writer, the songwriters 
continued to get paid all the time when the when the musicians who just played on the album didn't get paid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You think that will change going forward, or basically? I would hope so. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I think for instance, there's no reason that streaming shouldn't pay a little bit more to artists, you know, and and streaming writ large means music, you know, essentially. And, and so that should be paying to artists. Publishers were originally, uh, they were selling sheet music publishers. They were set up to sell sheet music and, right. you know, help to promote the song. But then they sort of, they became kind of a, an afterthought publishing, no? Is it? No, no. Right. Music publishing became a very important business and mm. continued. And, and, and quite frankly, it was these two big performing rights organizations, ASCAP and BMI, that made sure that the songwriters continued to get paid no matter what technology was delivering uh, the content. Mm -hmm. What should content creators on social media, these folks want to have businesses, they want to have a career. Can they do that without copyright or will they do it in spite no, of they, copyright they have to, enforcement? They have, to, they have to use legitimate tools to pay the artists if, if you're doing a video and you put somebody's a bob dylan tune in the background of that you got to make sure that bob dylan gets paid or even some unknown musician whose tune you put in the background mm -hmm. and that's a responsibility for everybody just to say you know this is this is an important part of sustaining creativity and, and, you know, even in the early days of video games, they were using lots of music in the background and weren't paying, and now they're paying. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, these, these things get themselves worked out over time. Taylor Swift famously forced her label, Universal Music Group, her new label recently, to share 3.6% equity that the label holds uh, in Spotify currently worth as much as $2 billion. Uh, they're going to share it with other artists when they sell. Uh, are such gestures of support uh, meaningful for the industry or what do you very, think? Yeah. Very. Uh, I mean, I, I think the fact that the artist, she's stuck up for not just for herself, but she's stuck up for all the artists that were on the label. And that's, that's an extraordinary important gesture. And it had meaning for a lot of people. A lot of people got a check out of that who were not Taylor Swift, right? Uh, you know, level artists. What do you think her motivation? I mean, it's, I think it's it's sort of it is the right thing to do, perhaps. But she gave up her masters, I think, in order to do that. Her motivation was she has been a supporter of artist rights from the very beginning. And that's an extraordinarily important role that other artists like Don Henley and T-Bone Burnett are constantly supporting the community at large. Roseanne Cash. There's lots of people I can name who've made it possible to support this larger artist rights agenda. Why do you think we have this culture of uh, everything should be available to everyone. How did we get here and what, what can we do about it? 
I mean, this is just because it happens to be intellectual property. What accepts that from the general notion that you don't ask for cars to be free, you don't ask for food to be free, and and just because it seems to be a little evanescent, why all of a sudden should that be free? Just because I can push it over a pipe uh, at no cost in a digital universe. So I mean, I'm I'm quite obviously. Optimistic. I think that when administrations like the Biden administration come in and say, look, we're going to support copyright holders, and I assume they're going to support patent holders too, uh, because the intellectual property is what made America so unique. Why is it that Apple has such dominant share of the smartphone market? You know, why is it that American companies dominate the movie space or dominate the music business is because of intellectual property rights. And without those, there would be nothing. Understanding IP Matters has been speaking with Jonathan Taplin, movie producer, author, and copyright advocate. If you would like to learn more about Taplin and his work, visit johntaplin.com. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and its supporters. Visit CIPU at understandingip.org. Follow us on Twitter at Center for IP. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower. Content conveyed by this podcast is for informational purposes and does not reflect the views of CIPU or its affiliates.